before Christ died, or before he was killed, was he hated? Was he hated? Right? He was hated. Now, he, and also, he died because of the envy, malice, and defamations. Right? Right? So, he died for, because there was envy and defamation against him. Isn't it? Alright? So, now, since in Genesis to Malachi, that, since from Genesis to Malachi, there is no prophecy, right, that talks about this statement, Christ died for our sins, specifically. It must be that there must be a dominant theme that will buttress the death of the Savior within the pages, right? We will see this within the pages. How are we going to see this? So write this down. What is going on in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Paul arrives at this conclusion by the use of the motif in the Old Testament. The dominant theme of the Old Testament. So, the dominant theme of the Old Testament has now become the fact of the gospel. The explanation of the gospel. Now, let's take it one by one so you get it. What is Christ again? Anointed. Right? Anointed. Now, so anointed means... Something that is sacred, right? Chosen or special, right? Now, and it means it's an office, right? All right? And that office comprises of what functions? Prophets, priests, and what? Messenger. So, we should ask. Anyone, remember I told you, anyone who believes the gospel, right? has come into the office of the anointed. So, is the, was the gospel said, preached, spoken about in the Old Testament? Yes or yes? Good. So, stay with me, please. Stay with me. So, can we say, was Abraham anointed? Abraham was anointed. Was Isaac, Jacob anointed? Was Abel anointed? Were they called prophets? Good. So if they were called prophets and they were anointed, that means they were Christ. Huh? I'm sure you should know that now. That means they were Christ. So let's move on. Was Abel persecuted? Huh? Was Abel persecuted? Was Abel envied at? Was, was Abel killed because of jealousy? Was David envied at? Was there an attempt to kill him, is that a dominant theme of the anointed? So when God became a man, will he face that? The fellowship of the anointed. They share the same. So Paul read Genesis to Malachi and saw that there was a faith, right, that is appointed to those God chose. And that faith is that they will die. So Paul will be able to see that when God became a man, he will also face it. So we can say the scriptures speaks of Christ being killed. Do you understand what I just did now? 
Are you seeing that? Don't worry. It'll be clear as we go on. So, now, let's, 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 let's answer some of these questions. Easy questions. Was Noah anointed? Huh? Was Noah mocked at? Good. Now, Moses, was he anointed? Was he persecuted? Of course. Was he rejected? He was. So, that means that there were anointed people in the scripture that were killed. Right? Right? Okay. So, it's not only Jesus, right, that faced the same faith. So, in Genesis to Malachi, what is the dominant theme, the motif, of the anointed folks is that they will be persecuted at, right? Or they will be killed. Are you following? That's a dominant theme when you are reading. So, for example, David, when he was facing persecution, he said, he, he said this in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David was not necessarily talking about Christ, even though that also implies that. But David said that because he was actually facing difficult times. Saul was pursuing him. Do you know what it means for the president of a nation to be after you? You are public enemy number one. Are you getting what I'm saying? So, now, Abel, who is Christ, right? That is anointed. Is, an, is a prophet, was killed by his brothers. Is there an example like that? Who? No, Joseph was not killed. Is there another example in the, new, in the synoptic? It's not, his brothers that, it's not Jesus' brothers that killed him. It's Jewish brothers that killed him, right? Good. And Abel was a prophet. So, when Jesus said in John 8, 44, please go there, John 8, 44, John 8, chapter 44. Please, are you understanding what I'm saying? Okay. John 8, 44. John chapter 8, verse 44. John 8, 44. He says, you have your father, the devil. Not you guys, though. He says, he says, the lust of your father, he will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the... When he says he was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus is referencing what Cain did to Hebel. Huh? He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. So Jesus is saying, guys, is there... What other law of interpretation has been applied in John 8.44 from yesterday's teaching here? Huh? identification unifiers, right? Two timelines events, right? Two different happening at the same time. Can you remember? That's an example. I just want to share that again. So, so Jesus saw the Pharisees and says, you have the father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now, of course, like I said, Jesus was speaking of Abel. And he said this, because the Pharisees, they were planning to kill him. Right? They were planning to kill him. Let's see Matthew 23. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Let us read from verse 31. He says, 
Wherefore, wherefore, he be witnesses unto yourself that ye are the children of them which what which killed the prophets. Fill ye up them the measure of your fathers. He serpents, he generations of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes. And some of them ye shall kill and crucify. And some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues. And persecute them from city to city. 35. 35. He says that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. From the blood of righteous where? Abel, unto the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakas, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. So, I want you to observe in verse 33, he called them, that, that is, he called the people that persecute the anointed, he called them the seed of the serpent. Are you following? This, he say he serpent. He says, generation of vipers. So, and why will he call them this? Because they were going to kill the Lord's anointed. They were going to persecute them. The first person that killed the Lord's anointed is who? Cain. Cain is a seed of the serpent. Are you following? He persecuted those who are of faith. Like Abel. You see, how is Abel of faith? Hebrews 11 verse 4. By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. By faith. Faith, what is the faith? Faith in the promise of God. Faith in the gospel. So Abel was a prophet. Right? Abel was a prophet. First John, look at First John. First John 3. First John chapter 3. So he called the seed of the serpents Cain. Seed of the, you know there's the seed of Christ, the believer. Right? Okay. So, First John chapter 3, First John chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Not as who is of, of the wicked one. Guys, follow me, please. I want you to be alive. Come on. He says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. So, when he says Cain is of the wicked one, who is the wicked one? The devil, the serpent, right? That's who he was. So he says, so what does that mean? That means that Genesis, right? Write this down. Genesis has set a motif. Genesis has set a motif that anointed people are persecuted. Genesis has set a motive that anointed people are persecuted. They are envied art. They are hated art. They are also visited with jealousy. Jealousy. And some are killed. Again, don't forget what's a motive. A motive is a non-verbal prophecy. Now, brothers and sisters, if the Jews, some of the Jews, have, if the Jews, some of the Jews, have read the scriptures properly, right? Would they have been surprised? Or would they have thought that the Christ, that's Jesus now, is a political savior? Would they have thought that? 
No, because they would have seen that they were men whom will have the seal of God that will face persecution from certain people. So they would have seen that this person would also die. Are you following? Are you following? So, so don't forget, a motif is a non-verbal prophecy. A motif is a non-verbal prophecy. Where is Emanuela? I've not seen her today. Ah, okay. Sorry. Sorry, do you hear your name in the recording? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I did not see, that's why. So, don't forget a motif is a number. Now, now, so what that will mean is that it will be that a motif is an event that happens frequently in scripture. Look 11. Look 11. Very similar to what we read in Matthew 23, but go here. Look 11. Look 11. Verse oh, 49. Luke 11, verse 49. He says, Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and what? And apostles. And some of them they shall slay and persecute. Verse 50. That the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. Look at the next thing he says in 51. From the blood of who? Abel. Unto the blood of Zechariah, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. So, remember, when we read Matthew 23, you know, this is very similar to what we read in Matthew 23, right? When we read Matthew 23, he says, he calls them, you serpents, right? You serpents. Now, when Jesus says that, as a Bible student, your mind should go to Genesis 3, right? Genesis 3. So, please, let's see Matthew 23, 37. Let's, there's something I want to draw out in 37 there. Verse 37. Matthew 23. Verse 37. He says... O Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets. And so, now, do you know that at this time, eh, at this time, no prophet was being killed. Jesus is quoting the scriptures. He's talking to them that they will kill him. Right? He knows. So because he knows, he's now saying that, again, identification in the fire, right? So he's saying that what you have done, right, to those prophets, you're going to do it to me. Are you following? So, when he says this, when he says this, it's because there is a motif of scripture. There is a motif of scripture that the anointed in scriptures are constantly persecuted and killed. So, do you understand why Jesus would tell his disciples, oh fools and slow of heart? Do you understand now? Because if they had read the scriptures, they would have known that something befalls those whom God has called the anointed. Are you following? Huh? So, so when Paul says, when Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, 
Paul is not quoting any verse. What's he doing? He's reading the Bible together. He's reading the Bible together. He's saying the explanation of those who are ministers of the gospel. Those who are prophets. Those who are prophets face death. He's mentioning the motif of scripture. He's mentioning the motif of scripture. The anointed are the anointed ones are persecuted, mocked, and killed. Remember what I told you. That in Christ, we inherit his what? His office, right? In inheriting his office, you would also inherit his sufferings. His sufferings are persecutions. As a minister of the gospel, you should be ready to face persecutions. People will call you names. People will call you all sorts. It's part of the job description of the anointed. Amen? Don't run away now. <laughs> don't run away, okay? I say, I, I don't want to be the anointed. You have believed. <laughs> and you can't undo that one. <laughs> so, so, the anointed ones are persecuted, mocked, and killed. Which means that the, the epistles are written in this light. They are written in this light. You must pick the motif in reading. There is a motif in scripture. I'll, I'll give you a, an assignment or test to do. I will not ask of it, but you should, I, I tell you to just do it. I want you to observe that when you get to, I'm going to talk about it a bit though. When you get to Genesis 4, or five, when they were talking about, when Moses was writing about the genealogies, right? There's something that is very distinctive in the genealogies that Moses does. There is a sect, right, in the genealogy that do not know the Lord. There is another sect, right, that they sought after the Lord. The likes of Enoch, Noah, and if, if, you are, if you are very, um, what's the word? Diligent, maybe that's not the word, in study, you observe that Moses often writes in tools. He begins with tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right? Life, I lay before you life and death. He writes in tools, the law of the spirit of life, the law of sin and death. He, write, he does that on purpose. To show you that there is there's a distinction of them who are of faith and of them who are in unbelief. Are you following? Very some, something unique about Moses' writing. So, so, right from Genesis, Abel is killed. Cain is the seed of the serpent. Abel now becomes what? The seed of God. An archetype of the seed of God. The one who is chosen. So, in other words, in scripture, in Bible reading, we must pay attention to the non-verbal prophecies. Things that are going to be speaking of the Savior, the motives. I'll say that again. We must pay attention to the non-verbal prophecies. Things that would happen that would speak of the work of the Savior, the fruits of the Savior's Savior. So, do you understand the motive 
of Christ being killed. Do you understand it? You will see it by looking at those who were called of God, chosen of God, right? And they faced death and persecution. So you can now know why Christ would die. They will be killed for envy and jealousy. Those are sins, are they not? Right? Those are sins. So it's the same way Jesus will also die even for those reasons. Are you following? Huh? Let's see another kind of motif. Pay attention. And I want you to write this down. Another kind of motif, I've already, I've already introduced it by talking about genealogy, right? Another kind of motif is the motif of birth. That is to give birth. B-I-R-T-H. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, you will see that Matthew gives a genealogy that ends in verse 16 and 17. He gives you a genealogy that ends in verse 16 and 17. And in that verse 17, it leads up to the birth of Christ, right? Right? It leads up to the birth of Christ. So that shows us that birth, right, is a motif. What, what, why is it a motif? It's a pattern leading up to something, right? Something God is, God uses birth for his purposes. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. Let us see it quickly. Uh, should I say it now? Okay, let's say it now. Genesis 3. Got it. Let's see. That birth is a motif. Genesis 3. Genesis 3. So that I should not say it now, but let's just let's look at it so that yeah, it will probably clear any doubt in your mind. So birth is a motif. So that means that we can see God's word right in birth. God's word in birth. Genesis 3.15. Let's see it. It says, please look at the Bible. This one. You have to don't look at the screen. Look at the Bible. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between what? D and the woman and between thy seed and her seed he shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. By that statement it says between thy seed and her seed. That introduces a bet motif of the Bible. God will begin to use bet to communicate his plans. Because when he says bruise thy seed, right? Between thy seed and her seed that is giving birth, isn't it? Right? So God will use that to now communicate his plan. Do you understand? This is the beginning. This is Genesis 3. Okay. So, so by uh, when you look at this, as an enmity emerged, there's an enmity that has emerged. An enmity that will bruise the head of some a particular seed, right? And another one that will bruise the heel. Now, of course, we can readily say that this is talking about Christ. That, but no. Yes, Christ is there, but his seeds are involved. Those who will bear that office, right? Even from the beginning, like Abel. 
Amen? Amen? Praise God. There should not be a motif of persecution now. Amen. Praise God. So, now Genesis 4. So, something happens in Genesis 4. After God tells, this is what will happen. So, I want you to know that an enmity has emerged. Right? An, em- an enmity has emerged. Okay. So, in Genesis 4, in Genesis chapter 4, he says, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and begged Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now, now, why did Eve say when Cain was born, I have gotten a man from the Lord? It's simple. Because God already told her, right, from God's word, that he would tie his word to give him birth, right? So, she is thinking that it will be Cain that will begin to do this work. But she missed it. Right? She missed it. So, she had another son, Abel. Right? Another son, Abel. Right? And God now chooses that one. Is that a motive in scripture? Where God chooses the younger. You've not seen it in scripture. Where God will choose the younger. So God will say, I will not choose the one you think I will choose. It's a motive. And what you are going to see about that motive is something that deals with grace. Grace. The grace of God. Where, you know, under normal circumstances, the ideal thing is to choose the person that came first. So God will not say, it's not going to be of works. I'm quoting Jacob and Esau, in case you don't know. That's, what, that's the story of Jacob and Esau. I will choose, as Paul explained, I will choose the one that will not be of works, but of grace. Are you following? So that's a motive, another motive emerges in Genesis 4, where God chooses the younger over the older. We'll see that one later. But do you understand? So we see here in, in Genesis 4 that Abel is chosen. Now I want you to pay attention to what Eve said. When Abel Cain killed Abel, Genesis 4, verse 25. Genesis 4, 25. The, the later part, anyway. She said, for God said, yeah, for God said, for God, sorry, let me just look at my heaven. For God said, she had appointed me another what? Another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So, in other words, the bet, sorry, in other words, the, the bet of Abel is God's word. It is God's redemptive method. It's God's redemptive method. How? Because God appointed him. God appointed him. God had chosen him. But Cain slew him. So, that method, that method becomes a theme of scripture. That method becomes a theme of scripture. What's the method? That genealogy becomes theology. Please don't sleep now, please. Genealogy becomes theology. For learning the Bible, please. Stay with me. Don't get tired. Endure. Okay? So, how, how, how someone is born... And why he is born becomes a motif in scripture. Now, 
another birth that is redemptive in nature. Now, I need you to pay attention here because this, what I'm about to say is a bit complicated, but I believe you get it. Another birth that is redemptive in nature and that is by God's word is the birth of Noah. Now, before Noah, there was a man called Enoch, right? Enoch is like, I think, the grand, great-grandfather of Noah now. Now, Enoch lived till 65 years old. He didn't die there. But when he lived to 65 years old, he gave birth to another son called Methuselah. Right? Methuselah. Now, the name Methuselah, this is Genesis 5.21, is like a prophecy. The name Methuselah is like a prophecy. It means, Methuselah means, when he dies, it will happen. That is, that's, the, that's what Methuselah, that is, something will happen when he dies. Right? That's the word Methuselah. When he dies, something will happen. Now, I, I, I checked. Now, what made me arrive at this is that the Hebrew word of Methuselah is not really very clear. But it was, Methuselah was mentioned in the New Testament. Right? So, the Greek word of Methuselah puts light on what that prophecy of that name is. Look, let's see. Look, look, look four. Look chapter four. Look chapter four. Are you there? Look four, please. I will encourage you in this place that you have your Bibles and you're really looking at what we're talking about. Because Luke chapter four, verse 37. Luke chapter four, verse 37. No, no, sorry, it's not look four. Uh, sorry. Let me get it. It's not look four. Uh, um, look, uh, let's see, look three, look three, look three. Yeah, look three, not look four. Thank you. Look three. Have you seen it? Huh? Look three. Look three, 37. So it says, which was the son of what? Methuselah. Now, Methuselah in the Greek means... When he dies, there shall be an emission. Emission. E-M-I-S-S-I-O-N. Now, if you check the word emission, just a normal word, emission means like a flood, right? A flood, that's the word emission, an, an outpour of something, emission means. So, so, this shows us there is a prophetic implication of the name Methuselah, right? Something will happen just at the death of Methuselah. Something is going to happen. And like the Greek gives us a lead on that, there will be an emission. And like I said, it means a flood, right? A flood. Now, so who gave him that name? Methuselah, his father, Enoch. Enoch is a prophet. Enoch is speaking as a prophet. He's speaking God's will. Right? So he's saying that an Enoch, knowing God's word, true birth, right? That the seed of a woman, of the woman, will bruise. Right? So knowing God's word, at the birth of Methuselah, right? He says 
that this one, something will happen at his death. There will be a flood. So, now, just put this as a side note before we just go on, because I wrote it here. That in genealogy, they don't include all their children. The Bible doesn't include. They only include the ones that matter. They only include the ones that matter. Now, so, we know of Methuselah, right? And Methuselah, out of the children that, from Enoch, is the one that get, lived the longest, right? And he gave birth to three sons. We have, no, no, not three sons. He gave birth to a son called Lamech. Lamech now gave birth to Noah. So, look at Genesis 5. Genesis 5. Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. And he called his name Noah, saying, The same shall comfort us. So, why did he call him Noah? He called him Noah because he's going to comfort. Right? He says, this name, uh, the same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of, of our hands because of the ground which the Lord had caused. So, they related Noah's birth, right, to the cause of sin in that Noah's birth will bring comfort, right, to what sin has caused. Eh? Noah's birth will bring comfort to what sin has caused. Are you following? The word Noah, that word Noah, it means comfort. It means rest place. Rest place. So, because there are, sin is on the earth and it's bringing curses. Right? As a result of the seed of the serpent. Huh? A bet will come that will be rest, right, to the causes of sin. Do you get what I just said? There will be a rest, right, that will be an answer eh, to the cause of sin. Is there someone like that in scripture? Which bet was that? Jesus. Are you following? So, so Noah means comfort. Rest place. So, just like Abel, Noah, birth is redemptive. It's a theology. It's a theology. Noah, was, it is said historically that Noah was born in the year of the flood. No, um, Methuselah died, rather, in the year of the flood, right? That is, the year the flood will happen. You know that flood that happened in the Bible, right? Methuselah died in that year. And, that, and Noah will be the answer, right, to what will happen after the flood. Rest. Are you lost? Are you sure? So, let us follow the narration, the, the reading of what we are looking at. Genesis 6. So, notice what happened after Noah's birth in Genesis chapter 6. Now, we've, we've, we've looked at this already, but let's say, you know, we say in Genesis, is the son of God's name, right? The Bible says the sons of God came into the daughters of men, right? We've looked at that. Now, <clears throat> so, do you notice something? What did I tell you that Satan does? Eh? Sorry? No, 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 no. 
when God has a plan, oh, you said that's what you said, a direct opposite. So, what have we been seeing? You are seeing that God is using birth to, be, to begin to create his plan, right? So, what does Satan do, right? He now begins to use that same method to also bring about his own plan, right? So, that's what we read here when he says, the Son of God saw the daughter of men, and they were fair and took them wives of all which they chose. Are you seeing that? Okay. Now, so notice the counter strategy of these ones. Since God uses birth, right? And he will use birth to redeem man and man, evil spirit or the devil tries to counter this. Tries to counter this. So, there is a counter-narrative to the theology of birth in scriptures. So, now, like I said, Noah's birth would, was to bring comfort, right, to what sin has done. And, I, we just, and you guys answered it correctly, that it's a motif. There's somebody that was, that was like that, which was Jesus. So that's a motif, isn't it? Now, in... Now, another one. Looking at birth, another one. Now, the next birth that was redemptive was Isaac. Right? Isaac. Isaac means laughter. Laughter. Jacob's birth, too, was redemptive. Right? Right? That's Genesis 25, verse 22 to 23. You see it. Genesis 25, 22 to 23. So, there is theology in birth. There is theology in birth. Let's read verse 23 of this. Let's read verse 23. It says, And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of... Is this Moses writing? Is this Moses? He's writing. He said, Two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Are you seeing that? So, now, another bet. So, look at how we have been coming from Abel. Yes, yes. Very. Abel, Noah, uh, okay, Enoch. Abel, Noah, who again? Who did we see? Eh? Isaac, thank you. Now, yes, Jacob. Yeah, let's, let's, Jacob is before Isaac, right? Huh? So Jacob, Isaac. Now, another one in, in the timeline will be who? Moses, right? Is Moses, does Moses' bed carry God's word? He does. So, what without tell you if you are reading scripture? That redemption will come through somebody that will be giving birth to. Right now. Because for all the births we have seen, their the redemption is coming through birth. Are you getting what I'm saying? So that is the pattern, the motif. Do you get what I just said? Eh? Do you understand? People are looking at this now. People are looking at this that this man talk your own and go. Do you understand? <laughs> okay. So, so let me say what I said again. That we must see that redemption would happen by somebody being born. By somebody being born. So, now, 
I didn't say this, but I, I, I believe this is very, very, very true. Very true. That the birth of Methuselah has a redemptive motive because of how long he lived. Because, you know, you know I, I, I believe sometimes in the Sunday schools that we grew up in, they always tell us that Methuselah was just a useless man. He lived long. He didn't do anything. I don't think so. Because Methuselah lived so long, and I believe that it is to speak of the long suffering of God. That that was a, an explanation to tell us of the, do you know how many years he lived for? 960 something, eh? 69. And it is to typify or to explain the long suffering of God in salvation or in redemption. Amen? And that is true. That is true. The Bible says that the long suffering of God is what? Is salvation. So, now, so, so, when Moses was born, the birth of Moses, what happened in the birth of Moses? Did a king kill children? Huh? So, in the birth of Moses, many children were killed. Did that happen to somebody? Good. So, the same way that, so now, why would that happened because the enemy knows that God will use, at least over time, you would have noticed it, that God will use the birth of someone to redeem. He will use the birth of somebody to redeem. Now, was Moses' life preserved? Did that happen to Jesus? Very good. So, Moses' birth was hid in the midst of Pharaoh, right? Jesus also was hid. Well, where was it? Where, was, where did Jesus go to hide? Where? Egypt, that's a motif, a recurring pattern. It's not a prophecy, it's a non-verbal prophecy. Are you seeing that? A recurring pattern. Amen? Amen? Okay. So, so notice that they didn't say, thus said the Lord. You will go, mm -mm. It was just a pattern that was coming out, that was pointing to redemption. Praise God. So, there is a pattern in scripture. There is a pattern in scripture. So, let's quickly do some short summary. Was Abel Christ? Was Noah Christ? Abraham? Isaac? Jacob? Moses? And of course, Jesus, right? <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. So, the birth of Jesus, all what we have been reading, don't, do you think that the birth of Jesus will follow the same pattern? It will. It will follow the same pattern. If they were persecuted, right? Right? If they were persecuted, they were persecuted because they will bear, this prophet, Abel, and I just mentioned, they are bearing the character, right? The character or the nature of the Christ of whom they are representing. Are you seeing that? So they are taking on his office. So Jesus also, when he became a man, he will be persecuted. Right? Are you, are you following me? Okay. So, so, write this down. To God, to God, birth has a purpose. Birth has a purpose. There is a supernatural intention to every birth. There is a supernatural intention to every birth. Brothers and sisters, what does that tell you and I? Does that tell you 
that we need to take our existence seriously. Huh? Does that tell you that? That we need to take the reason why we are here on earth seriously. Because God is serious. Listen, I didn't tell you, I didn't say new birth. I'm talking about even biological birth. God is seriously interested in that. Amen? Amen? Okay. So. <clears throat> okay, that's true. <laughs> so. People being born in the earth is God's redemptive method. There is a supernatural element of man's existence. There is a supernatural element of man's existence. So birth is, birth is God's method. It's what he will do on the earth. Now, let's move on from there and explain something very that will help you. Look at Isaiah 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Now, this may, this may change some things that um, you believe, but it will help you in Bible study. Anyway, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Is, this, is he talking about Jesus? Is this prophecy about Jesus? Eh? <laughs> eh? <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't even know whether I should say it. Okay, let's, I'm already I've opened it. Okay. Okay, you know what? Let's do something. Let's do something very quickly. Just a simple test. Let's do something. Um, right where you are, you are open, just open your Bible there and read from chapter. Just read in your mind. Right? For the next four minutes. Four minutes. Read from verse 1 to verse 14. Just quietly. Just read. Just quietly. You have one minute more. Man, oh. So, in the reading, what could you see? You know, what could you see in the reading now? Someone, just anybody. Don't worry about whether you're right or wrong. Just say what's it. Eh? There's a war. Good. That's a good point. War. War between who and who? Huh? That's good. As another kingdom. Uh huh. Yes. That's that's true. Uh huh. Can you give him the mic? He's saying something. It seems like to Ahaz, something came like something that was similar to Solomon. Where God is saying, God told Solomon, ask for what you want. God is telling Ahaz, ask for a sign. And Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to tempt God. And then gets to verse 13, when he now says, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And so, what was the sign? What was the sign for? What was the sign for now? Yes, who else is talking? He has tried. Good reading. He saw a war between Ahaz and other kingdoms. And it looks as though. Ahaz was going to be defeated, right? So what now happened? 
Redemption. That's power nine. You will the answer. Yes, he wants to try. Okay. I think from from the reading, the sign that okay, the sign was to show that God was going to be with them in the war for what I can see. But Pastor, that's good. That's good, Pastor Joy. Mrs. Infine, yes. Mrs. Infine. I'm sorry, Ma. Yes. That's a good point. Yes. Wait. The side was for hours, but there's Matthew 1, 23. We're going, we going there, Ma. We're going there, Ma. That's, that's good. So, so anybody, anybody want to try? Oh, Pastor, down noise. Okay. Yes, there's Matthew 1, and I'm going to explain that. But I just want you to, I wanted us to stay with the, the reading. Now, so, uh, what is playing out here is there is a war going on. And it seems as though Hayaz was going to be defeated. Right? So, God comes through prophet Isaiah. Right? And tells him, don't worry, you're not going to be defeated. Ask me anything, right? And I will save you from the war. So it looks as if Ahaz was playing the humble guy. I will not ask, you know, and things like that. Then Isaiah now says, let's read together. I'm going to explain. Let's read together. He says, and he said, Hear ye now, verse 13, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will he weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So, now, there's something I didn't tell you to do. So, go to Isaiah chapter 8. We're exp I'm explaining it now, so you see. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. Verse 8. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 8. Yes, it says, And he shall pass through Judea, he shall overflow and go over, he shall reach even to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land. Oh, so Emmanuel is somebody's name. Amen? It's someone's name. Okay, let's go back to 7. So, the sign that God gave King Ahaz, it was for what? Eh? For eh? the winning of the war. So if we say that text is about the Christ, are you saying that Isaiah had to wait till Jesus came before he win the war? Eh? That's an extra, extra, eh? extra So, but that birth in, that Isaiah 7, 14, is, an, is to tell Ahaz that he's actually going to win that war through that bed, right? So that is the, the contextual reading, right? So an Emmanuel means what? I am with you. So you are going to win that war because I am with you. Now, do you understand that part? Okay, so now, like um, she said, it was used in Matthew 1. 
And I'm going to explain that very shortly. Just follow this first. So, remember that we have established some. Now, do you understand what I just said? Right? That is very important. That is, what we just did is that we stayed with the reading. The context, right? That's what we did. We just stayed with the reading. So, no, I jumped to show you that that person is a person. Uh, that's why. I, in Isaiah chapter 8, right? He's a person. The full story in the reading. Mm. And if, if, we, if we stay there, sir, what we'll just say is that the bet was going to be a sign, sign that, it, yes, 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 of course, that the bet was a sign that he was going to win the war. That's just from verse 1 to verse 14, right? But in chapter 8, we now see that that person, right, that Emmanuel, is not referring to the Christ, right? He's referring to a person when you get into chapter 8. Do you understand? So, if, if that's the case, now I want you to see that God already had already established a thought process that birth will be used to do redemption, right? So, <clears throat> now, if that's the case, let's go to that Matthew 1, that she said. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, verse 18. It says, Okay, let's read for 21, 21 actually. 21 says, and, ish, and she shall bring forth his son, and thou shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from sin. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with a child, and shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted God with us. Now, verse 22 says, now all this was done that it might be fulfilled. The word fulfilled means, I'm trying to tell you why Matthew uses it. That's what I want to show you, why Matthew uses it. So, just to understand the way Matthew writes, anyway. So, the word fulfilled means to bring something full circle, to, to bring to a conclusion, to bring it to a conclusion. Or, better still, to repeat an evidence. So, what Matthew does is that it connects a totally different event to what is happening here. Now, Matthew is not saying that Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus. Now, do you notice that Jesus was never called Emmanuel, right? He was never called Emmanuel. Why? Because that was not the name he was given. He was called Yeshua, Jesus. So, what Matthew has done, please, I want you to see this. What Matthew has done is that he connects, he connects by motif what happened to Jesus and what Isaiah is saying. Now, let me, let me, let me put it like this. So, maybe, maybe to be clear right with this. Throughout the deliverance, God delivering men in the Old Testament, he says he would be with them, right? He delivered them by being with them. Throughout Egypt, uh, when they went to um, Babylon, he delivered all of them, right? So, Ahaz comes in the picture and is in trouble, right? And Prophet Isaiah says, you are in trouble, right? You will be delivered. Because I am with you. Right? So, 
Matthew wants to talk about Jesus and his birth. Now, and he says, the angel says his name is what? Yeshua. For he shall save his people from sin. So, in all of the context of deliverance, there was bondage, right? There was something that people were being delivered from, right? And in that deliverance, God was the one taking them out, right? That's the story of all the deliverance, right? So Matthew wants to talk about a deliverance that is about to happen to the world, right? And now mentions the birth of the Savior. So Matthew now says, like what we say, when you, when you explain, you now quote a scripture to back what you are saying up. So Matthew now quotes a scripture, he backs it up. That just as how God will deliver people in bondage, the birth of Jesus is a such, deli- such deliverance. Do you understand? Do you understand, man? Do you understand? Okay, let's do it verse by verse. Verse by verse. Maybe we understand it verse by verse. Okay. Maybe, maybe to be clear. Let's see something. Matthew 2. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Verse 15. Let's, Matthew chapter 2 verse 15. Another example by Matthew. Let's read verse 13. And when they were departed, behold, Matthew 2.15, and when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night. And departed into Egypt. Verse 15. And was there until death of Herod. That it might be fulfilled. Which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, are you ready for this? Okay. Go to Osea 11. This is, Matthew is quoting Osea 11. Osea 11. Are you ready together? Is, 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 Is Osea talking about Jesus? This is an historical account. Right? This is something that happened in history. Are you seeing that? So, what is Matthew doing? This is Matthew's style of writing. Matthew is taking similar stories, right? That appears, he's taking similar stories that resembles what is going on with Jesus. Because look at what Matthew interprets in Matthew 2. Joseph have gone to Egypt because of the killing, right? And an angel now appeared that they should leave Egypt. Matthew now says, let me back it up. Right? So, Matthew is using a similar story to relate with Jesus. It it has nothing to do with Jesus. Do you see it? Another example. Another example. So, now, Osea, hold on, let me me just say this for for commentary in your notes. Osea 11.1 is not a prophecy, but an historical fact. An historical fact that Israel being called out of Egypt. Right? So, now, where is Osea in the biblical timeline? Osea is speaking to Israel in Babylon. Huh? So, Osea uses a motif in scripture that God calls people out and saying that God will call out people. Do you understand? So, 
So Osia isn't prophesying. He's referring to something that God has done before and that he will do it again. Do you understand? So Matthew sees the life of Jesus, right? The life of Jesus as a fulfillment of prior events of scriptures. That's what Matthew is doing. Osia wasn't prophesying about Jesus at all. Amen? So, but what Matthew does is that Matthew finds a connection, right? He finds a connection between what is going on and what is happening in the story of Jesus. Do you see it? Okay. So, <clears throat> so in Matthew 1.23, Matthew isn't referring to Isaiah's prophecy. He is quoting a text. Right? He's saying that this experience, right, that is happening to Jesus, let me liken it to this experience that is happening here. Are you following? That is how Matthew writes. Okay, let me show you another one. Matthew 8. Matthew 8. Matthew 8, 16. Matthew 8, 16. Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. He says, And when the evening was come, they brought unto him many, with him many, that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirit with his word, and healed all that were sick. Now, then he says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sickness. Now, Jesus healed the sick, right? But do you know that? If you read Isaiah 53, right? If you read Isaiah 53, when Jesus, what Isaiah is talking about is how Jesus took sin. That's that is sin. Are you following? Isaiah 53 is talking about how Jesus took sin. So what does Isaiah do? What does Matthew do? Again, Matthew is saying that he's relating that story of Jesus to something that Jesus, that Isaiah speaks of. Are you following? So, like I said, Matthew finds a connection because in that prophecy, right, there, it relates to the activities of the Christ. Do you understand? Amen? Okay. So, in case you don't understand, let's do verse by verse study. Go back to Isaiah 7-1. Let's go. Let's do verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. Don't worry. Let's do it. In case, uh, don't worry. So, in case you don't understand. Oh, yeah? Go there. Go there. So, Verse 1 says, in verse 1 and 2, there was a war, right, with the Syrian king, right? The Syrian king is about to invade the camp of Ahaz. So, this already introduces you that it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. Rabbi? Okay. Verse 3. Verse 3. V between verse 3, because of time I'll be fast. Between verse 3 to verse 6, God sent Isaiah to, um, Isaiah to Ahaz, right? Right? Now, so in verse 7 and 9, verse 7 and 9, it says, Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is risen. And within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. Verse 9. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remelia's son. If he will not believe, surely he shall not be established. Verse 10. 
Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord, thy God, and it's, ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Now, so they are bringing what to Ahaz. Ahaz is scared. God sends his prophets. He says, go and tell him. Just as I did to Israel in Egypt, I will save you. I will be there for you. Are you for that? That verse 10 shows you how Ahaz is scared. Verse 11 shows you that God tells Ahaz to ask for a sign, right? Verse 12 says, Ahaz says, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Now, verse 13 now says, Yea, ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but you will? But will he weary my God also? In other words, into verse 14. Is this a prophecy about Jesus or a, a declaration of God's protection from the invasion that is coming? Protection. Because God is saying that this bet will, be, will prove to you that I will protect you from the invasion that is coming. Do you understand? So... <clears throat> The point of why he's called Emmanuel, right, is that for in redemption, God is with us. So this is the point. This birth, right, is also a motif like other births that God will redeem and deliver when there is trouble. Are you following? Is it clear? Is it clear? <laughs> I hope so. Anyway, Praise God. So... <clears throat> So, write this down, please. Write this down. I would have to be very fast now. I'll be very fast. So, Emmanuel means God with us. And it's a reminder, it's a reminder of how God was with the children of Israelites when he brought them out of the land of Israel with Moses. He tells Moses, I will be with you. The same way he tells Jacob, remember, when Jacob was to leave Laban's house. He tells Jacob, I will be with you. So, that statement, I will be with you, which is the word Emmanuel, is what we can call God's Exodus title. God's Exodus title. So, that means that the name Emmanuel is also a motif. Remember, let me tell you how I just established it as a motif. Did God tell Moses he's going to be with him? That's Emmanuel. Did God tell Jacob he's going to be with him? That is Emmanuel. Right? Now, did God tell, tell Ahaz he's going to be with him? That is Emmanuel. And for every place God is saying that, he's saying that he will deliver. For example, when Jacob wanted to go and see his brother, Jacob thought that his brother is going to kill him. So God said, no, I will be with you. Right? So he gets to Ahaz and he's saying that, I will also deliver. So that's a, that's a recurring pattern, isn't it? So that's a motive also. Now, <clears throat> so, so Emmanuel is a motive. A motive of what? A motive that God will rescue. A motive that God will rescue. That God will rescue. So when Matthew says it, when Matthew says it in verse 23, Matthew is saying, that the birth of, please write this down. That the birth of Jesus 
is an exodus experience. What does that mean? God is about to liberate. Do you see why Matthew quotes it? Amen? Do you see why Matthew quotes it? God is about to liberate. Why will Matthew quote it? Because Matthew has seen, right? There is a motive in scripture that when God is with somebody, right, or with a people, he wants to cause deliverance. He wants to cause liberation. Are you following? Are you there? Okay. So, so, he says, so by saying God with us, relating it with Jesus, Matthew is saying that the birth of Jesus is an exodus experience. God is about to liberate. Is about to set free. Is about to raise a nation. Is it clear? Is it clear? So, can I say the name Emmanuel, when you look at the motive of, in scripture, is an office of what God wants to do. Right? Okay. So, Matthew, Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Verse 20. It says, Lo, I am with you always. Lo, I am with you always. Matthew 18. Quickly now. Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Matthew 18, verse 20. It says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. There I am. That word I am is taken from Exodus, right? I am. Now, so if you go back to Matthew 16. So remember, we just said something that by using the word Emmanuel by Matthew, Matthew is relating that God is about to create a nation. He's about to liberate people, right? Okay. So, so when in, hold on, before you change it to Matthew 16, where he says, when he says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Is this church? Is this church? This is church. Where two or more people come together, it's church. So he's saying that I am in their midst. I am in their midst. So now, go to Matthew 16 now. Go to Matthew 16. Verse 18. He says, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. The word church is the word ecclesia, which means called out. Called out. So, God did God call out Israel out of Egypt? So, by calling Israel out of Egypt, what does he do? He calls us out of darkness, right? He calls us out of sin. In other words, the church is an exodus people. We are an exodus people. People called out of darkness, called out of sin. What that means is that Jesus, therefore, bears the office of the Emmanuel. The one who will deliver and call out people. Amen? Amen? So, so this is a Bible motive. It's a Bible motive. It's a non-verbal prophecy. A non-verbal prophecy. So, the birth of Jesus, let's, let's, let's 
begin to bring what we're saying home quickly. The birth of Jesus is like the birth of Abel, the birth of Noah, the birth of Jacob, the birth of Moses, and like, and also like the child of a virgin in Isaiah 7:14. His sufferings, that's Jesus' sufferings, are like the sufferings of Moses and David. They're like the sufferings of Moses and David. So when you say, when you say the word became flesh. The word became flesh. You are saying, just like how we started from, how we started from, first of all, this is number one. You are saying that the word of the Lord, who was God in the Old Testament, that angel that we saw, that, ex- that, has, that had a supernatural function, we now see him in the natural, right? We now see him in the natural. He comes like a man, right? So, now, he's like a man like Abel, right? He's like a man like Noah, right? He's like a man like Abraham, right? So, if he's like that, he now takes their sufferings, right? He takes their personalities upon himself, and he now wears that office. Amen. He wears that office. So, Jesus' betrayal, right? Is that the first time they betrayed the anointed? No. It was Judas called to betray Jesus. No. Judas just picked a wrong motif in scripture. (laughs) No, that's what Judas just picked a wrong motif in scripture. He decided to choose those who have betrayed the anointed. And not the first time. <laughs> exactly. So, <clears throat> so, if, so when he says, when we say Christ died for our sins, when we say Christ died for our sins, it's not a particular verse in the scripture. It is the general theology and motive of the scriptures. If he bore our sins, right? If he bore our sins, the sin that we first see about the anointed is the scene of envy, hatred, and murder, right? From Genesis 4, right? So, he would bear our sins. He would take upon him, right, man's wickedness and anger in his sacrifice, right? That's what he would take. He would put it upon himself. He would put it upon himself. And he will be suffering the fate, the fate of the anointed that has come before him. Right? And this is consistent throughout the Bible. Is it clear? Are you sure? Okay. So, now, so, the office of the anointed, therefore, is an office that speaks of a ministry, and it speaks of sufferings. It speaks of sufferings, sufferings, sufferings. This suffering is persecution, is persecution. Now, in other words, the stories in the Old Testament, the stories in the Old Testament are stories that will be 
or that are motifs, rather. Let's put it like that. The stories in the Old Testament are motifs that speak about the gospel. I'm going to show you one, and we close from this story. And we close from this story here. Now, how many of us know the, the story of Rahab? You know the story of Rahab? Right. Now, that story, the spies, right, went into Jericho. And they now said, so Rahab was the one that accepted them. And what we know is that Rahab, by accepting them, her own house was not destroyed. Now, will you agree with me that that is the gospel, right? Now, you may say, now, that, does, that, does that say anything about the death of Jesus? Eh? There's no death of Jesus there now. There's no resurrection of Jesus there. Abby? But is that the gospel? Why? Simple. It is the gospel because Rahab believed, all right? God's story and God's plan of his people, that his people will come into a promised land. Rahab believed that God called Israel out of Egypt, rescued them, and defeated the gods of Egypt to bring them to a place. She believed that. She believed that. And is that the gospel? To be rescued from Egypt. Right? To be rescued from bondage. So, if that is the gospel, for example, another one is Abraham's faith. Did Abraham, did Abraham hear about the death of Jesus? Did he hear that? No. What God told Abraham was that, like I said, in you shall the whole family of the earth be blessed. And Abraham believed that. Abraham saw the new creation, right? Abraham saw the family of God. So, why will we say that the death of Jesus and his resurrection is an explanation? It's because all those events, right? How those events will be achieved is how Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Is it clear? Okay, so, so, so Christ dying for our sins is that he bore these offices. That is, he, he took on these offices. So, just like they were saviors, saviors, these men are called saviors, he is the savior, right? He is the savior. So, just like they were called sons, because they were called sons, he is the son. They were called Christ. He is the Christ. Right? They, were, they had kings. Right? He is the king. They were priests who served the Lord. He is the priest. He's called the high priest. Are you seeing that? Now, they are servants. Right? He's also the servants. So, in other words, we can write like this. Right? Jesus is like David, right? Jesus is like David. You know, people say this, that God has called us, and this may be very funny to some people, God has called us to be like him. You cannot be like God, but you can be in his likeness. Do you understand the difference? You can be in his likeness, because we are called to act in his image, but we are not the image. Do you understand? So we are called to act in his likeness. What The only person 
He's only God that can be like us. And that's what he did. Do you know what it means to be like someone? That means you embody everything about him. But we, in the new creation, we are in his likeness. Right? In his image. Are you following? So, is God has not called us to be like him because there's really, there's no like God, really, right? There's no like God. But we are called to act in his image and in his likeness. That is identification. That's identification. That's identification. So, when David, when David cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know, Jesus also said the same thing, right? And on the cross. Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, that experience of David, David is declaring that he's innocent in this circumstance, right? He's declaring that he's, and he needs to be rescued, right? It is the same thing Jesus is doing. That Jesus is saying, I am not the one who is in sin, right? I am taking on this suffering for humanity. Praise God. I am taking on this humanity for humanity. This suffering for humanity, sorry. So, the only difference between David and Jesus is that God will rescue, right, David from that predicament. But for Jesus, he is the one that does, that rescues himself. He will die and he will be raised from the dead. He will be raised from the dead. So, so Jesus is the innocent one on the cross, right? But he's taking the sins of the world, isn't it? He's taking the sufferings. So, now, in other words, we can say this clearly. That when we look at our office, when we look at the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the narratives, the narratives that has been given to us, the narrative in scripture is that those who belong to that office should know that there will be persecutions, should know that the man that is born again in, in the preaching of the gospel there will be trials and tribulations. He should know. That is part of his ministry. And this is his support. His support is that his Lord, Jesus, has also faced it. And he came out victorious. So, that man that has received that ministry will also come out victorious in persecution. Sometimes, yes. Yes. Some may die as a result of it. But that is also a victory. That is also victory. That is also victory. That means, that means, when we, when we read the scripture and we see what we have been called into, and let's say, and we are facing them in our world today, where our attention should go back to is that our attention should go back to the stories of those, right, who have gone, sorry, who have, 
what's the word now? Who have been in the past. Who have experienced those things. Are you following? Because we are sharing, right, in the same fellowship, right? We are sharing in the same ministry. See, this message, right, this message and this office, except you don't want to preach, right? Except you don't want to be a witness for the Lord. Except you don't want to build men, right? You will face persecutions. You will face persecutions. So in the narratives, in the events, we will see facts about the gospel. Facts about the gospel. Facts about the gospel. Let me show you one place. A motif in scripture. Just one. And I'll let you study that on your own. You should just study that on your own. Go to Osea 6. Osea 6. Osea chapter 6. Verse 1. Let's read from verse 1. He says, Come and let us return unto the Lord. For he had torn and he will heal us. He had smitten and he will bind us up. Verse 2. After two days will he revive us. Where? And what happened? In the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. He says, in the third day, he will raise us up. The word third day, right, is a motif in scripture. It's a motif in scripture. In scripture, when you see third day, you should study it. I'll give you some verses that you should check. It deals with an appearance. An appearance. It deals with an appearance. So, third day is a motif of appearance. Look at Exodus 19, very quickly. Also, I'm done. I just want you to study this on your own. Exodus 9, no, sorry, Exodus 19, verse 9 to 11. Exodus 19, verse 9 to 11. And Exodus 19, 17 to 20. Remember, Paul says, Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day, right? So, again, you are not going to see in Scripture. There's no place you will see in Scripture that they said that Jesus Christ will be raised on, from the dead the third day. There's nothing like that. But there's a motif in Scripture that says on the third day, there's going to be an appearance. So, in Exodus, if you read it, you're going to see that. Another one that I want you to note, you should study it. When you, when you get home, you can read it. Another place is, just, sorry, let me, the fan has blown that. Let me just, Get it back. Um, Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Look at verse 2. It says, and it came to pass. Oh, okay, this, we'll go to verse 4. The story here is um, Abraham going to sacrifice his son Isaac, right? So in verse 4, it says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw... The place afar off. You should be very careful in this reading. You should, I mean, you should read carefully. What I want you to see, what, what you will see here is that Abraham actually saw God. Go to verse 14. But you should read it when you get home. Verse 14. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah Jireh. As it said 
to this day. In the month of the Lord, it shall be seen. Jesus will refer to this and say, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He did it on the third day. That's the motif of the resurrection. Are you following? Okay. So that's two texts I told you to read. You can read them. Genesis 22. Exodus 19, verse 9 to 11. Exodus 19, verse 17 to 21. Another place is John 2. John, John 2, 19. Just read it. You see the motif of the resurrection there. The motif of the resurrection. Now, now another one is about Jonah. Jonah. Read, you can just check it out when you get home. Jonah 1, 17. Read it into Jonah 2, Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. You will see there. The Bible says Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jesus will talk about it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 to 40, right? So, so it means that, again, just like our Paul did for the dead, for the resurrection, Paul is bringing the event of the Bible together and he calls it the gospel. He calls it the gospel. So, write this down. So, in the gospel, are there people killing other people? Eh? In the gospel, are people killing other people? Yes. So, in the gospel, we see human wickedness. We see betrayal. We see human treachery. These are part of the gospel. These are part and parcel of the fact of the gospel. So, our attention is that we must constantly be going back to read the narratives, the events, and the facts about the gospel. When you read the stories in the Old Testament, those stories you are reading, you are reading God's persuasions about his plans. That's what you are reading. That's what you are reading. So God's word is in events, is in narratives, is in stories. The gospel is in the stories of men, in the narrative. Is in the stories of men in the narratives. And in those stories, we are seeing the plan of God. Those who is calling. And those who is sending with his message. Those who is calling. Those who is sending with his message. Those who believe and they are preserved from destruction. Like Rehab. Huh? Like Rehab. Just to give you a clue about read the story of Esther, right? And find out when Esther appeared before the king. Hmm? You will see that Esther appeared on the third day. The third day deals with an appearance, a motive of appearance. So in the resurrection, the church emerges. The church emerges with a mandate. The church emerges with a commission. To be a representative of God's presence on the earth. That's why we are called heirs. We are called sons of God. So, in other words, what we see throughout the scripture is that we are seeing every time you read a story in the Bible. What I'm telling you to do is that I want you to see how God is communicating his plan and purpose in that story. When you see that, you will now see how God is interested in the story of your life. You will see that God will want to use the things that are happening to you so that you can use it to pass across the message of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? 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 So, 
I close with this. I close with this. That we have been commissioned in Christ Jesus to, carry, to, to, to speak of God's plans and purpose for the earth. Tomorrow, tomorrow, the first session and the, and, and the next session, one of the things I'm going to show you and we are going to see is how God works within us to fulfill that plan. How God works within us to fulfill that plan. The influence of God's spirit among us. Praise God. Are you blessed? Thank you. There's no need to clap, okay? <laughs> It's God's word. You don't clap. <laughs>